This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. The world of COVID-19 is buzzing following President Cyril Ramaphosa's announcement that the country will be moving to level two of lockdown as from midnight tonight. While international travel is still not allowed, South Africa is open for business. We get into the details with political analyst Mighty Jamie to unpack what level two means. And firstly, before we start about the move to level two, the president for the first time addressed the nation on a Saturday. On Sunday, we were commemorating eight years since the Marigana massacre. Do you think there is a correlation between the two? Well, I think that um, there's a strong conclusion that can be drawn that uh, the public relations team was trying to avoid having the lockdown discussion conflated with the discussion around the Marigana massacre. So I do think that there was a strategic move that was made to avoid that conversation clashing. If you observed people who were talking about the president on Sunday in favorable terms actually experienced a lot of backlash. So I think it was foreseeable that having the discussion on the actual day would have had adverse consequences from a PR perspective from the president because it would have put those two stories adjacent to each other And that would have led to some media houses having to pick them up more aggressively to say, it's the anniversary of the Americana massacre. Is the president actually going to address this issue? And obviously, there are still a lot of um, concerns about why the president hasn't visited the site and what happened to those plans which were announced where uh, he was supposed to go with Mama Winnie Mandela to the site to actually pay his respects, considering that he has been implicated in the process at one level or another. And there's a public sentiment that actually still believes that there is continuing injustice and that no one has been held to account in the proper manner for the Marikana massacre. Lots to unpack there, but not for today's show. So now looking at the speech directly, What are the highlights for you with moving to lockdown level two? And what are some of the key changes that come out from this move? Well, I think for many people, it's going to be the ability to actually travel interprovincially, the ability to finally get back cigarettes and alcohol at an official level. Although many people have had these substances, uh, you know, unofficially, it also does look like some of the lockdown observance was breaking down organically because there were, there were a considerable number of reports of restaurants now serving alcohol regardless of lockdown. You know, some were doing it in teacups, some were doing it brazenly in defiance. A lot of Johannesburg um, restaurants seemed to no longer be observing uh, the lockdown regulations. And as we know, Um, you know, uh, contraband cigarettes were available freely. So that indicates that for many already, there was a lack of adherence. The same applies to family visits. It's no secret that people have been visiting their families. People have been, uh, you know, taking part in, um, you know, parties and social gatherings. Uh, I see it in the the, the residential area where I live in, and I've seen countless uh, accounts, although they are all anecdotal, but they are so frequent that we can reasonably conclude that, you know, the observation of the lockdown was already reducing. Having said all of that, I think one of the issues that we all have to be considerate and careful about is whether or not these numbers are as positive as government suggested. If you recall, the Western Cape, when they were going through 
their quote-unquote peak, they started trying to manage the COVID numbers by restricting the number of people who could access the test. There's considerable reporting on the Western Cape decision to only limit to the age of 55 the number of people who could access. So if you were 55 or under, you could not automatically just get a COVID-19 test, regardless of what you felt or thought was happening to your body. Only people over 55 with extreme symptoms were being required to test. This leads to the question, if the nation adopted the same strategy across the board, because there were some doctors saying we've been instructed to test less, that could mean that some of the data that we are relying on is not as strong and accurate. And some of the conclusions being drawn from that data are such that uh, we ought not necessarily to embrace them fully. And if you continue to look at the death rate, uh, we continue to see a rising number in people dying from COVID-19 and it doesn't look like it's slowing down. So while the number of reported cases seems to be positive, we are still seeing the number of people dying from COVID-19 not slowing down necessarily. And perhaps that's the number we need to be paying more attention to as opposed to daily cases, because the daily cases don't seem to necessarily be 100%. We definitely know in the Western Cape, they are not an accurate representation of the level of COVID in society, especially if you have asymptomatic carriers. Now, with every move to a level down, there's always talk of a surge in COVID-19 infections. Do you think we are going to see this surge happen now? And what should we be noting from the international community and how they recovered from the pandemic following a surge? Well, I mean, if you look at everything that we, we have been discussing in terms of level two, there's a very high likelihood that we're going to see more new cases coming out if we had an accurate testing mechanism. And so there is a risk that you could end up having uh, another wave of COVID-19 and um, we could have more people dying from COVID-19. It's going to be very difficult to track this if the number of tests are now reduced. However, what we've seen from Italy is that they've had a situation where because of the reopening of the nightclubs, they've had a, an increase in COVID-19 cases. So if nightclubs and restaurants are reopening in South Africa, and we already see that in Italy, they caused an increase in cases, I think that it's reasonable to conclude that we could see a second wave of COVID-19 as a result of the relaxation of the regulation. It's very difficult to really see what the way forward is for the government at this particular point, because the other reality is there's a lot of economic pressure in South Africa that doesn't necessarily exist in other countries, other members of the G20. And that economic pressure comes from the fact that South Africa is not in a position to use quantitative easing as a method of fundraising. Quantitative easing is when a state prints more money to fund whatever needs it may have. And in this case, it will obviously be the COVID-19 crisis. But unfortunately, if South Africa as an emerging market economy were to uh, pursue quantitative easing, as the Americans, the Canadians, and the Europeans have, what that would lead to is a depreciation of uh, the, the RAND at an accelerated rate. If that happens, you can have a lot of people divesting of the RAND and that could create a collapse. And that's the concern and people are being conservative in their approach to uh, fundraising. And that, that only leaves IMF and that only leaves 
um, you know, uh, issuing bonds. But both of those measures don't seem to have had much of an impact in terms of the amount of money that could be raised. That therefore leaves the state with only one option to get people back to work so that those people can at least take care of themselves and try to prevent themselves from getting the virus. And um, this is why I think I've said that this is a shock absorber approach where the, the country doesn't really have much of a strategic agenda that it can pursue economically without being uh, adversely affected one way or another. So the approach seems to be, let us absorb the economic shock, let us absorb the healthcare shock as well. Now, in your opinion, is this approach correct? And do you think we can handle this move as a country? Well, I think it's the only approach that seems available considering that the government is uh, fiscally conservative. They're unwilling to take certain risks in terms of printing money. I do, however, think that um, the approach is a risky approach in the sense that we may not actually be able to reduce the levels of COVID-19 with this particular approach. So what I mean by this is that as long as we keep reopening elements of the economy, like if you look at restaurants, if you look at interprovincial travel, if, for instance, a number of people move from KZN into Gauteng, that could lead to a surge in Gauteng. If you have people from the Eastern Cape traveling back to the Western Cape, that could also lead to a surge in the Western Cape. All of this is to say, uh, it doesn't seem as if the current approach will have much of an impact on COVID-19 itself. As I said, it seems to be an approach that seems to absorb the shock and impact of COVID-19 as opposed to really reducing the spread of the virus at this particular point. I think it's also critical to bear in mind that um, the activities that we've seen from young people especially are of uh, an alarming nature when it comes to alcohol consumption, social interactions, and those young people who live in communities with the elderly are going to put those elderly people at risk of contracting COVID-19. And one thing we've heard time and time again is that we could possibly move back to a level five and level four. But do you think this is actually realistic and something that South Africans should actually be fearful of? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think that we have a government that actually is looking backwards in terms of COVID-19. It looks like it's forward to level zero. Uh, there's no turning back. And the reason why I say that is because if you recall what announcements that the president made earlier was that if... Uh, certain provinces started experiencing surge or if they started having uh, problematic results in terms of COVID-19, they would adopt, uh, you know, a directed strategy at those particular spaces to make sure that they manage those particular spaces very uh, intricately. We didn't see that with the Western Cape when they were surging. We didn't see it with Gauteng. We didn't see it with the Eastern Cape. We haven't seen it with KZN. What, what, what that leads us to believe is that it doesn't indicate that there's an appetite from the government in any shape or form to go back to different levels. And that's merely predicated on the behavior of the government in spite of what they had said around how they will manage uh, localized um, peaks in infections or localized surges. Now, Jamie, how do you think government can navigate the social impact that has happened during COVID-19? Things that come to mind are job losses that are occurring, families having lost people. What do you have to say to that? 
Well, there's no doubt that there's been an adverse social impact. Uh, We've seen it with gender-based violence, as you've mentioned, job losses. We've also seen it with the disrupted uh, learning uh, program this year. And it's, it's a challenge that does exist for this particular government. And one of the things that poses a challenge in terms of any intervention has to be the financial oversight, because government has tried to do food parcels. They have tried to roll out some sort of support But unfortunately, a lot of that support has been looted. A lot of that has um, found its way into the wrong hands as a result of overpricing irregular tenders being awarded. So what this means is that government has to pursue or attempt to pursue any intervention with the strongest oversight possible. Having said that, interventions are required and the government has to trying to find ways to um, not only reboot the economy, but try to address the social impact. And that could be through universal basic payments, which are higher than what has been offered right now. The 350s uh, do help in some extent, the RAND 350 that has been allocated to people who are unemployed. But if you consider people who have lost their jobs, who have certain financial obligations, be that rent, car payments, um, some people have mortgages, all of their financial obligations to financial institutions, whether it's clothing companies, furniture companies, that kind of thing. If you're going to assist those people, you may need to create a buffer for them, for them to be able to um, maintain a certain quality of life in the interim. The reason why I say that is because if those people begin to default on their payments, those uh, lending institutions will then also be at high risk and there will be job losses downstream. So if you can't pay for your car, that may just seem like it's a personal problem, but it's a problem that could affect people who are in the uh, auto uh, selling industry, people who are in downstream um, industries in that particular sector. And that applies across the board. So government has to really think about long-term financial payments. Government has to really think about some issues such as rent payments, because for those people who have been unemployed for the duration of this pandemic or who lost their jobs rather during this pandemic, it's going to be important to make sure that we don't start seeing mass evictions. uh, We don't start seeing people losing their accommodation in the middle of a crisis that is no fault of their own. So the role of the state has to be to try to manage this. And lastly, of course, we need to see accelerated policing interventions as we reintroduce alcohol, as we uh, reintroduce social activity, we need to manage some of the harms um, that we've seen as a result of that increased gender violence, uh, gender-based violence that we've seen. So it's going to be important for the state to really think carefully about all of these social impacts. And lastly, we may have to consider postponing the metric exams because I don't think that we will have a strong impact if we allow or if we continue on the timetable that has been put out, because I think that the grade 12s were in communities that were harshly affected by COVID-19 and who didn't have access to online learning, those grade 12s are not in the same position as grade 12s from the private schools and from the former Model C schools, which did continue with learning during COVID-19, basically almost uninterrupted. And that was political analyst Jamie Mighty sharing with us some key takeaways from lockdown level 
two. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1. Or streams by www.varfm.co.za.